From the Montana Kaiman, University of Montana's independent student-run newspaper, this is the Kaiman Cast for the week of February 14th. I'm Austin Amistoy. After moving online for the first time in its 19-year history in 2021, the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival is back in full force. The 10-day event will see more than 200 artists descend on Missoula as their nonfiction films are premiered for an audience of thousands. While films are shown on subjects from around the world, nine are featured in the Made in Montana category. On this episode, conversations with the creators and characters of three Made in Montana documentaries, The Cookie Man, Meantime, and Daughter of a Lost Bird. I can point to a place on the islands where Christ is being born, and you realize your own mortality. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And Our first film is The Cookie Man, directed by Thomas Schenk and Alette Bugman. My dad always said, nobody, nobody ever died from, from working too hard. I'm sort of testing that hypothesis. The very personal documentary follows former Dutch professional runner turned beloved cookie baker Jan Bugman as he contemplates 40 years in the stroopwafel making business from his home in Billings, Montana. With Bugman's retirement looming, the film explores legacy, family, and the struggle that comes with accepting change. But I think it resonates with him because he had to make certain choices, and choices are hard. Do you go right or do you go left? Joining me now to talk more about the film are its co-directors, Thomas Schenk and Alette Bugman. Thomas is a professional film editor from the Netherlands and makes his directorial debut with The Cookie Man, while Alette is a Montana-born producer and graduate of the University of Montana. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having hey, us. Thank you. <laughs> now, I wanted to start uh, actually with a question for you, Alette. Um, you have a very special connection to this film that I was hoping you would share with us. That's right. <laughs> so um, the cookie man or Jan, he's actually my father. So that's, a, a, yeah, it's a, quite a unique uh, thing to do, I guess, to make a film about your father. It sounds easy, but it's really scary because he's so close to you. <laughs> I feel like we had the feeling when we did is like, oh, he doesn't really know what we're doing because he thought we were just going to make a film about him making cookies. But we had a different plan. So we felt a little bit guilty. That's interesting. So Jan was under the assumption that you guys were just making the film about his cookie business, but really it's a little bit more than that, right? Yeah, but it's, I think it's interesting to, for Alette to tell how we came up with the idea why we thought we should make a film about him. And it's kind of an interesting story, and I think Alette can tell, can tell best how that went. Yeah, so I guess I live abroad in the Netherlands, really far away from my parents, um, in a lot of ways, sort of the reverse story of my father's own story, um, having immigrated to the United States. So I go home uh, maybe once a year, uh, and it was the summer, uh, maybe the winter of 2018. I went home, and we were on our way to the airport. I think it was like 5 in the morning. I was on the way back uh, to come back uh, uh, 
to Amsterdam, which is always sort of a yeah difficult thing to do. But this time just felt really different. So he was like uh, over a, standing over a, a big pot of caramel, sort of chained to it, you know, stirring, and he couldn't leave it. And he just looked at me and started crying and said, "Don't leave me here. I want to go with you." Mm. And I, when I went back to, to uh, the Netherlands, I was I shared that with. Thomas and uh, some other things that he says. He said of... one important line that he said while I was there. He was like, "It feels like I just woke up after forty years as a cookie baker." Wow. You yeah, know? exactly. And he was like, "What? What? How did this happen?" And so when Alad came back and told me this story, I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting because everybody you tell this story to, like, you know, he's like a Dutch guy, and they started like baking this really Dutch." traditional Dutch cookie in such a weird setting, you know, like in Montana, like a lot of people from the Netherlands don't know, even know where Montana is. But if you explain (laughs) them, then it's like mountains and rodeo and stuff. And they're like, oh, and he started a cookie, a strobe bakery there. You know, everybody's interested and think it's really cool. So when she said that her father actually felt like, yeah, like he was sort of confused about how this happened and if he should be proud of it or gl- happy with it it kind of like triggered something in me the the film opens with Jan reading it actually closes with Jan reading excerpts from the road not taken um a poem by Robert Frost f- fairly famous uh, two roads diverge in the yellow wood etc and so forth um and i thought it was so interesting and poignant uh, of a choice to make because as you guys were just talking about the film really does hinge itself on this, you know, these choices that faced Jan in the past and that face him now, you know, stay in the Netherlands or go to the United States or retire or keep going. Um, And this bookend to the film really sort of hits at a lot of those themes. I was just wondering what came with the choice to use that poem as bookends? Was that one that your father always uh, appreciated himself or is it one that you felt was thematically appropriate? Well, I'll tell you when we were doing the interview, I mean, it was, you know, like five hours or six hours of interviews. We didn't know he was going to read that poem. I actually didn't know that that was a poem that he connects with so much, although later saw it on his Facebook. But um, <laughs> but he, he's, he, we were talking, you know, five hours of interviews and talking about all these themes. And he said that actually, oh, maybe there's a poem, I think, that says it better or something like this. Mm-hmm. And we were actually off. I think we weren't even recording at the time. And then we said, oh, we have to like turn on the mic, turn on the mic. And then he said, oh, yeah, but I can't find it. I can't find it. We're like, oh, OK. You know, but we can look it up on the internet. Oh, no, no, no. So it took a lot to get him to read this poem yeah. in the first place. Um, he knew exactly where the book was. With he the knew poem. exactly where it was. Mm. He just he knew it would be very emotional. Yeah. And you can hear that he, he starts crying in the interview. Mm-hmm. I actually had to leave because it was sort of uncontrollable. So I I think, yeah, the choice of to use it, um, did we, I, I mean, it's I don't know if we started even with the poem, but at a certain point, it, it, it just, just happened. happened. Like he yeah. actually brought it up and he was, he was sort of, he brought it up and then I said like, oh, that sounds great. Like, yeah, why not? Just hmm. like, can you just maybe read it like on the thing? And he was like, no, 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 maybe not. And I was like, so we continued to interview and like half an hour later, I asked about it again. And then eventually I got him to get the book hmm. and he started reading the poem. And then like after two lines, he just broke, you know, hmm. he just couldn't read it because he, it made him so like it sort of encapsulated all these things that we just talked about for hours. But at the same time, I was like, oh, this is 
it's really nice and beautiful, but at the same time, it was also a confirmation of like the vision we had for the film, like that he was struggling with these things, all sort of came together in that one poem. And it was really a, an affirmation of like, oh, we're actually right about how we think the story is and how we should tell the story. And that felt sort of like nice to have a confirmation that we were not creating something that was maybe our vision and not necessarily how he was experiencing it. Alat mentioned during the reading of that poem, you know, at one point you felt compelled to leave the room um, just due to the emotion of, of, of it all. And I was wondering if it was difficult for either of you or both of you to navigate telling this story about a person you both have such a close connection with and if it was, you know, sometimes hard to stay out of the story um, necessarily. Well, I'll tell you something really funny, which I should probably start with myself, but this was actually only the second time Thomas had met my father, so that's oh. quite a unique way, I think, to get to know him. But from my side, I mean, I think that, I mean, even throughout the filming of it, I really, I refer to him as Jan and not really as my father, because in a way, as a filmmaker, I I also felt that maybe it was sort of bad that I knew him, or I felt, felt like it wasn't a... Yeah, like the, it felt like it was easy, but um, <laughs> as you, yeah, as you're sort of also in the question, it's also you know that's what enabled us to tell the story because he was very open to us being there, and um, yeah, but my own experience, I guess, I yeah, I really tried to see him from an outside view, and um, and then other times realized that it was my proximity that actually made made the film. Better. One thing I picked up on is that sound is so critical to the storytelling in this film. You know, we hear the mechanical rhythm of gears and pulleys on the cookie machine and the ticking of that clock on the wall inside the kitchen. There's the water in, in Chico Hot Spring that we hear sloshing around later on. All of these themes sort of like stand out as motifs about sort of the, the, the passage of time and, and the, you know, that aspect of Jan's life sort of... Um, moving on at all times. And I was just wondering how you guys chose to highlight certain sounds and, and leave others in the background. Well, first of all, great to hear that you pick up on all these things because, yeah. <laughs> you know. Because like, that's, that's what we were. That it's was pretty cool, accurate. Uh, I think you, you, you described it really well. Like, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, the machine is so, uh, the sound of the machine, you can't escape from it. You know, it's just there. And it's something Alette also described like as one of these things that are really like when she hears that, she's just in that space. And that machine is also, I mean, it's so the, those rhythms of that machine and the clock is just so close together that it's sort of like, yeah, makes a really nice sort of soundscape. And you get, yeah, you get sort of. I think a nice thing that happens with the sound is that sometimes you're in that busy bakery, you know, and you hear all the people and you hear the machines and then suddenly you're just more in this like sort of more magical world where there's just the sound of the machine and the, and the, and the passing of time and you have some more like things moving in slow motion. So like dipping in and out of these different worlds through sound uh, is something that, yeah, really helps to tell the story and also... Yeah, really pulls you in. It, it creates a really intimate uh, environment. Uh. I would never have you spoil any secrets or choices, 
But the film does end on a pretty uncertain note for Jan. Um, and I think that's probably intentional on your guys' part. Sort of as he's confronting the, you know, the passage of time, considering his legacy, and sort of pondering this question of retirement. What is, what's next for Jan? Like, what does Cookie Man 2 look like? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, we we can we can uh, say we can tell the little secret that he's still baking cookies. Hmm. Um, I don't think we're ruining the the, the story by it because. Uh, but um, yeah, what is next for him? Uh, well, first he's gonna see this film, and this might like make him think about things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It could be really confronting, you know. It's hmm. like thirty minute. It's thirty minute film about you. You know, mm-hmm. he's really telling the story well i'll say ever since we have even done the interview i've i do notice a shift in the way he talks so i think he's kind of coming to terms with the facts i mean it this like this for everyone in the film he also goes through cycles of sort of like coming to terms with things and then going back out again and i think we're all a little bit like that but i think he's sort of rounding the corner on coming to terms with it again but what's next i i don't know i've to, oh, to be completely I honest i think seeing the film in uh, missoula is going to be a really interesting time because we're very excited to see the film but i think it's going to be very interesting to see what his reaction is and i think that that may be another turning point so mm. maybe we should start filming <laughs> i think for him he, 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 yeah he really has to i mean we've thought about a lot of titles for this film uh, um, and eventually we chose the cookie man because the film is so much about identity and uh, the Cookie Man is who a lot of people think he is and who he sort of is, but he also has still, you know, is the is the the Dutch former runner, and he he, you know, it's something that he can stop being the Cookie Man, you know, and that's sort of he has to sort of come to peace with that and then find out if he's not the Cookie Man who he really is. Once again. Directors of The Cookie Man, Thomas Shank and Alette Bugman, joining me for an interview. Thank you both very much for your time. Welcome. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Cookie Man premieres online on Monday, February 21st at 10 a.m. and at the Roxy on Tuesday, the 22nd at 4 p.m. with an additional screening at the Wilma on Sunday, the 27th at 5.30 p.m. You can find tickets online at BigSkyFilmFest.org. I knew I was crashing, and that scared the piss out of me. Well, our next film is one in which the person behind the camera is also one in front of the camera. Meantime was directed, shot, and edited by Michael Workman. Wow. Boy, couldn't even catch that guy. He was going fast. The documentary follows Michael himself and his father, Tim, as they reconnect in Missoula following a stroke that began to impact his father's memory. The two bear old wounds as Tim confronts scars from his past, spending the most time together since Michael's childhood. Some of that was the most proudest time in my life. Deep down, I knew I couldn't hold on to it. 
And with me to talk more about the film is Michael Workman himself. Michael is a University of Montana graduate and filmmaker currently based in San Francisco. His projects tend to focus on subculture and the working class. He's also served at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival for nearly 10 years. Michael, thanks for joining me. Thanks. Happy to be here. After your film establishes the premise, Michael, we see you on camera within the first minute or two, and then the camera pivots around to show your father, Tim, in his home in Missoula. Right there, you're established as not just the creative behind the project, but a member of the story itself, a character. Was it hard for you to navigate that line while you made this film? Yeah, I mean, definitely. That was probably one of the hardest parts of the film. Um, I think for me, I've always been somebody who's been a bit um, recalcitrant to the idea of personal films. Um, And I've had hard times with them in the past, just feeling like um, indulgent um, and not necessarily like um, being that is something of interest to the person outside of making the film. And so I think when I was approaching this film, I thought a lot about um, me as a character and what my like role is. And that was a process that would continually change throughout the course of making the film. Yeah. And Michael, this is a, a gorgeous film, both, you know, in terms of the richness of, of narrative, um, but also just the cinematography specifically. You know, you, you served a cinematographer on this film uh, as well as in your directorial role. There's so many shots of Missoula and the mountains and ski hills, you know, under the cover of clouds just um, that, that are just stunning. And I, I sense a lot of um, affection towards Missoula and towards this environment. And I was just sort of wondering what life was like for you growing up in Missoula. Yeah, I, I had an upbringing kind of straddled between two different worlds. Um between kind of my dad's life and my mom's life. So my mom worked at the University of Montana. She was a research assistant in the um, in the microbiology department um, when I was a child. And then um, my dad was in and out of working as a nurse, um, a mental health nurse um, and working construction when that wasn't working out. So my dad's always like kind of ridden the line of unhoused slash impoverished through most of my life that was always like a thin line so um yeah I feel like I I grew up partially in in the university district and then I also grew up Mm. partially um at at the trailer park in the KOA um, Mm. which is very different worlds so yeah I mean growing up in Missoula is a very different place than it is now it was much I would say rougher around the edges. Um, and, and I enjoyed that and kind of with the mm-hmm. rapid gentrification, the, um, and really kind of the university's free fall, uh, the character of the town has changed a lot since I was a kid. Yeah. And the, the changes happening in Missoula aren't the only difficulties, you know, your dad has faced as this film indicates, um, this is a really pivotal time in your life and your father's life following um, his stroke. And I was just wondering how you went around deciding to put it on film in the first place. I made this film as a part of um, 
my MFA thesis program at Stanford. So I, I needed to make a film and I found myself back in Missoula temporarily um, during the pandemic. Um, and so I was developing another idea for a film that kind of involved my dad on the tertiary of it. Um, that idea fell through because of access issues with, with other, with getting rights to archival footage that I couldn't get rights to. And um, so then I was thinking of new ideas and I had already started filming a little bit with my dad and I had kind of come to the realization that like a lot of my films and a lot of the stories that I'm responding to are like recreations of my own story through mm. usually through my perspective that I've learned through like witnessing my dad and um, and I had started to see some approaches to personal films that I appreciated more. And so um, I started to think about like, I guess I could make this film with my dad. I, I might end up being stuck here for longer, which I was. Um, and so it just kind of like worked out in that way. And, and honestly, I mean, it became like an excuse for me to like, um, bring up things that otherwise would be challenging to because mm. of the construct of a film kind of just allows for you to create situations that wouldn't necessarily occur naturally or gives you an excuse to, um, which was, you know, helpful for us, like growing, I think, together and, and, and also like to just talk about challenging things that would, you know, mostly not be like talked about in 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 the film michael you juxtapose footage of your own childhood growing up um with footage of your dad in childhood as well um and we learn you know some really crucial happenings from your dad's childhood that sort of impacted his life you know from then on and then you know by extension your life and that juxtaposition is a real theme that your your film strikes did you find that this film changed your relationship with your father or maybe altered your perspective of him at all? So I think it, I think in some ways it deepened our relationship in some ways it made it really challenging for both of us. Um, we were both by the end of the process, really exhausted by the construct of the film and really just wanted to be able to spend time with each other. And it, in the beginning, it was nice because it was like, it was really like intentional time that we were able to spend together. And having that structure was helpful to have it be regular and also have it address like certain parts of our lives. Um, but it was really challenging by the end of it. And we were both really <laughs> exhausted. What, what do you hope viewers will take away when they watch Meantime? I mean, I think my primary hope is to think about just how kind of inhuman our, our system is and how little um, it supports people who aren't able to fit into the gear that of work um, that aren't able to, you know, uh, conform um, and that those people are always are left behind. And, and that's kind of my primary political goal to just be frank about it. Um, I think on a personal level, I mean, I'm 
always interested in people like walking away thinking about their own relationships with the people that they love and their families and, and how complicated that is and kind of the need to address things, but also kind of the need to know when you just, some things are like better left unsaid sometimes. And I think that's something that I've learned. Once again, Michael Workman, director of Made in Montana documentary Meantime, joining me. Michael, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Austin. Meantime makes its streaming debut on Monday, February 21st at 10 a.m. with an additional screening at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday, February 27th at the Wilma. Tickets are available at BigSkyFilmFest.org. When I was adopted, the agency had said to her, be careful. If someone, like, saw her and was like, that's a native baby, (laughs) you're white, you shouldn't have her. Somehow she was terrified someone was going to try to take me. And our final film is Daughter of a Lost Bird, directed by Brooke Pepion Sweeney. The film tells the story of Kendra Malnichuk Potter, a native woman and Missoula resident who was adopted into a white family as a baby. Hi, April, this is Kendra Potter, your birth daughter. I, I don't know if leaving a voicemail is too weird. Over the course of seven years as an adult, Potter reconnects with her birth mother and discovers not only a new world of tradition, family, and culture, but a shared experience that binds her and her birth mother together. Like if you are a Native American person living in an urban environment who's never set foot on any kind of reservation, knows nothing about your culture and heritage, what is that nativeness? What is it? I don't know. I'm not saying that there's not a right to want it, but it's a, but it's it's elusive. And if we don't know who we are, we can't do anything about it. To talk more about the film and the story at its heart, I am thrilled to welcome Kendra Potter herself to the podcast today. Kendra, thank you so much for being on. Oh, thanks for having me. This is very much a story and a documentary, not about a moment or an event, but a journey. Um, you know, the earliest footage that we see shot in this film that's dated, uh, it goes all the way back to 2013, um, right when you kickstarted your journey to reconnecting with um, April, you know, your birth mother. And I imagine that the reason it takes place over such an extended amount of time is in part due to your really close relationship with the director, um, you know, Brooke Sweeney. I, I was just wondering if you could give us a little bit of background on you and Brooke, how long you two have known each other and when you decided to film this journey that we see in the in the documentary. Yeah, it's funny. Um, she and I were just talking about it this week, actually, <clears throat> how it's been over a decade now that we've been friends. She originally we met um, through I auditioned. I'm also an actor and I auditioned for a film that she was directing as a graduate student at Tisch in New York City, a film that never got made. And she, uh, we met in that process and then she ended up writing a different film that's called Okay, Breathe Orally and cast me as the title role in that. Wow. And when she sent me the script for that, I was reading it and, uh, in that script, the protagonist, the main character is a young native adoptee who decides that she wants a baby. 
And it's a quirky, funny short film about this woman whose like biological clock is going off. And I was, as I read the script, I was like, I don't remember telling Brooke this much about my personal life. Like she wrote a story that was totally paralleling my biological clock was going off. I'm married to a white man. He was saying, maybe we should find out more about where you come from before we mm. try to bring more people into the world. And um, <clears throat> so we made that film and then it went to Sundance. And while we were at Sundance, we realized how um, many people were interested in the fact that the story paralleled mine. And Brooke suggested that we actually go and find my birth mother and my tribe. Wow. And I was sort of reticent to do it until I got pregnant with my own child. And mm. then the pregnancy, uh, I, I really wanted to answer the questions that I didn't have so that my kid didn't have the same questions. And that was when I said, yeah, you know what, let's, let's do it. One of the, th the things that Brooke mentions in the film, because Brooke is also a voice in, in, in the film since, you know, in some way she was a partner on this journey with you. Um, she mentions at one point that she was nervous about the ways that having the camera there could potentially impact your choices on this journey. Um, and we, you know, the camera is witness to some really sensitive, intimate moments between, you know, you and April and your family and that first phone call. Did you ever feel the camera as an intrusive presence at any point in this movie? Or was it there as sort of a, in a different capacity for you? That's such a great question. I feel like the camera was was my partner in this process. It never, I never felt intruded upon. I mean, I had agreed to make the film in the same time that I agreed to find my birth mother. And even though it's a highly personal, ex I mean, like probably the most personal experience that, a, that I have ever gone through and learning publicly is terrifying. Mm. And, and some of the stuff we did happened much faster than I would have probably done. If she was just following me on my process and I was sure. leading the way, I think it would have taken a lot longer, but mm. um, there were a couple of times where we were like, you know, we got to get we got to get to Lummi so that we can keep making the project. I don't know that I would have gone to uh, my tribe's reservation as soon mm -hmm. as I did. I don't know if I would have tried to enroll. I know I wouldn't have tried to enroll as soon as I did because I was scared of trying, mm. but I did it for the film. So it, it, the film was like the wind in my sails a couple <laughs> of times. It Ah, that's so amazing, Kendra. And a big element of this film, um, which is all the way up to the to the title, is its discussion of the assimilation of you know Native people during the last century, and sort of the way that that's changed even in this century, and sort of a reflection of your experience. You know, going from this sort of very intentional, very direct, and and very brutalistic assimilation to one sort of as a 
you know, result in the aftermath of that period, right? Um, and in the film, we see you grapple with this idea that you were raised in this loving family and never really missed that Native identity that you could have had in this other sense. And you're sort of grappling with this. And I just wonder if that's gotten easier for you as you've grown closer to that other side of yourself that you never knew about. Ah, uh, easier. I think I've become more familiar with the discomfort if that makes sense. Um, mm. I, I mean, it's, it's wild, Austin. I only in the last couple of years can comfortably refer to myself as a native woman wow. without feeling cringy or like, is that allowed? Can I, I don't. Um, and a lot of that I think has come from being a mother to a child I have two kids now but my my eldest in particular is very interested in her identity mm. and as a native person and she refers to herself freely openly always had as being brown as being indigenous and has incredible amounts of pride around being uh from the Lummi people and so I've had to step up mm. and orient myself um for both of us and for my son as well. So I, um, yeah, it's still super awkward. Like <laughs> really, really, I feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable, but also have sort of made friends with that discomfort or understand yeah. that that's probably going to be a lifelong process. Yeah. No, oh, that's great. And I, you know, it's in line with this with this film, it, this film's sort of message or theme is um, this idea of process and processing, right? And sort of processing with, you know, self, identity, place, community. Um, and I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, this this film deals with a lot of really relevant issues um, with Native people today and, and the, the struggles they face. Um, and it's it's very refreshing, I think, watching your story and, and seeing this sort of like example of of hope, frankly, and sort of optimism. Um, what impact do you hope th this film will have on people in, in Montana and beyond? There was a period of time that one in every three or four children had been forcibly removed by the government. Mm. Um, and that of course, if we think for, you know, a very long time, like 40 years or more, children were being like taken from their parents, raised by white families. And then this is me, daughter of a lost bird. Like what are, what have happened to the children of those children? Where are yeah. they in the world and how, how can they make their way back? So my hope is that by watching this film, those children feel maybe like there's a way back that they didn't understand was there mm. um, and that it's worth doing that work, which is scary, but it's, it's worth trying. And my hope is also that non-native uh, audience members learn uh, about what, what was done in, um, and what is honestly continuing to be done. Kendra Malnachuk-Potter, thank you once again for joining me to talk more about your story and this film. It was such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, Austin.
Daughter of a Lost Bird will have its Montana premiere at the Wilma on Sunday, February 20th at 3.15 p.m. It will also be available to stream starting Monday, February 21st. Tickets are available at BigSkyFilmFest.org. The Big Sky Documentary Film Festival runs for 10 days from Friday, February 18th to Sunday, February 27th. Individual tickets are available for purchase online, as well as passes that range from $40 to $350. Stay tuned for an episode of The Second Look this Monday, featuring an interview with the festival's director of six years, Rachel Gregg. The Kaiman cast is produced and edited by me, Austin Amistoy. That's it for this week's episode. Next time, the story behind a Missoula gym that trained generations of Monty Bear mascots. I'll see you there.